Do you want to know how a film crew of misfits have made four moderately successful feature films for no money? Want to know how they shot the fourth one in nine days straight? Pick up Red Cow Entertainment's first book, More Weight, The Making of Having Fun Up There and Other Filmmaking Tales, by me, Frankie Freen. Available on paperback, hardcover, PDF, and audiobook. Includes asides and appendices from other filmmakers and beautiful production stills. This 287-pager contains funny anecdotes, do's and do-nots, technical step-by-steps, screenwriting, producing, and cinematography tutorials, and film festival and distribution advice. Go to redcowentertainment.com store. Also available on lulu.com, amazon.com, and audible.com. Read it. You'll like it. Hi, I'm Frankie Frain, and I've been making movies since I was a kid. I've made four low-budget feature films of varying success, and I've been to film school. Twice. For better or worse, I've developed a science for completing feature-length films on pocket change, and it has a lot to do with the conversations you'll hear on this podcast with teachers, friends, and artists. You don't have to pay 40 grand a year for bad advice. This is Discount Film School. Welcome back to Discount Film School. I'm sitting down with Matt Pillisher. Uh, one, one of the really awesome things about putting out podcasts and movies and stuff is um, every now and then you, you, you throw a Hail Mary pass into the internet and somebody catches it. And uh, Matt found out about Red Cow through uh, – I was on an episode of Movie Geeks United uh, a couple of months back. And he listened to it and then he kind of followed like the breadcrumb trail of, of movies and, and the book and shit like that. And uh, so he was nice enough to send me um, <clears throat> a link to his latest movie, which is a narrative called The Dark Souvenir. And I also went over to this great site that I want to hear more about your experience with uh, yeah. called uh, Seed and Spark, which is both a crowdfunding and distribution uh, site that was set up, I think, I think fairly recently uh, uh, for a documentary that he's had uh, a good deal of success with now called Broken on All Sides. It's about uh, – uh, incar- mass incarcerations and, and a lot of the fallout that happened uh, over the war on drugs and whatnot. So, Matt, thanks so much for wanting to uh, to be on the show and talk to us about these movies. Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to be here. And um, you, uh, I really like your podcast. And um, yeah, I found Movie Geeks United. I'm kind of new to technology, so I'm just getting into podcasts. Mm. Movie Geeks United was the first awesome podcast on movies I found, and then yours was the second. But yours is more about making movies and really the kind of productions that I do. So I find it very valuable and, and useful to listen to. Oh, that's good to hear because yeah. uh, that's exactly why we do it. Um, so you weren't always – film wasn't always in your blood. You, uh, From what I read, you have a background in law and that was kind of your first thing or is, is that true? Uh, no, it was the other way around. All right. Yeah, I've always I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. Um, I mean, I guess probably since I was like in in uh, junior high or something. Um, but I grew up being an artist. My mom was an artist. I have arts in my family, and uh, I came to law school later in life. Um, I graduated in two thousand ten. Um, and uh, I got into law because I was an activist. So kind of artist first, activist second, lawyer third. So, where, yeah, where where are you based out of? Uh Philly. I'm in the Philly suburbs. Oh, okay. What's the uh what's the filmmaking community out there? Uh I'm not too tapped into it. Um Are there schools or anything for like that, that are like I'm not aware of any Philadelphia-based film schools. I think Temple is the best film program around here. Temple's a big state school. Um, but no, I there's not a specific, uh, film school here. Um, I, we we, Philly always kind of lives in the shadow of New York city because we're like two hours away. Mm. So, um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of great universities and I think Temple probably has the biggest and best communications and film program, but I didn't go to film school. Okay. So if, what did you do for your undergrad work? I, I went to, um, a place called Bennington college, which is, a very artsy liberal arts school um, in Vermont, and uh, and that's where I I guess I studied film the most. I majored in film, mm. uh, but we you know we just had like tape to tape uh, editing until my senior year when they got a bunch of computers and I was too scared to learn it, so I didn't. Um, was it mostly a focus on film studies? That's that's what it sounds like. 
my well, like what what does it what does it mean to major in film at a at a non film school like that? Um, so it's a very strange school. It's very small, and you design your own education. So there was only like one main video teacher, and he he just offered like a couple of video classes. And when I said I wanted to major in film or video, he, um, you know, he became kind of the main mentor there. And, and it was mostly just like doing independent studies with him, doing all of his video one, video two, what I can't even remember what they were. Um, it wasn't that many video classes, but then I did, there was a lot of crossover. So I took poetry classes, but I would always do a final piece that was a video. Um, and so it, it wasn't a whole lot of film studies. It was a, you know, I studied all the arts, um, but I, I made a lot of videos while I was there. Gotcha. So what, what were the growing up? What were the big films that kind of made you want to be a filmmaker um, or even directors? Right. Well, I, um, I really liked Stanley Kubrick, as everyone tends to, to do. Um, oh, it's funny. I, I, it's funny. I was t- I was talking to uh, you. You know Jeff Torelli, who wrote the movie, who wrote Having yeah. Fun up there. He uh, he and I always talk about like uh, a lot of times when you hear inspirations, uh, that, you know what what made people want to become filmmakers. You often you rarely hear the really heavy hitters. You more often hear people like uh, <clears throat> Robert Rodriguez or b- people that, that, or Kevin Smith, yeah. people who succeeded with lower budgets. And while I think everybody can agree that like Stanley Kubrick has never made a bad movie. Uh, often people don't cite him as I want to make movies because he showed me that it, it's possible. In, in, in some ways he's almost kind of like a, uh, a blockade where you're like, right. well, I, I can't do that. So <laughs> he showed me it's impossible. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I, I don't, I didn't quite have that same experience. Um, it's, it seemed like it would be really difficult to make movies at, at, at budgets like that. But I, I was, I liked, um, Kubrick and like Scorsese and all kind of the classics. And then I was really into scary movies, um, my whole life. So I loved like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Shining and, um, Jacob's Ladder. We used to watch grow like we used to like my friends would come over and we'd watch movies in my basement, like hang out. And we had band practice and then we'd watch movies and it was usually scary movies. Um, so I think, oh, and then I got real into like foreign films, like as I got into college. And I think like one of my biggest uh, favorites and influences is Ingmar Bergman from Sweden. I really like him. Um and 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 now that and when I was thinking about it, I actually was writing with my Swedish friend who appears briefly in the beginning of a dark souvenir, mm-hmm. um, and he's the reason we were in Sweden. And it made me think, oh yeah, uh, Ingmar Bergman, who I haven't thought of in years, it, it probably had a big influence on that um, film. I really like really like him. I can, I can see it actually. Yeah, uh, it's funny your your Swedish friend at the beginning of that movie. I, he actually for he was in there for like five seconds, but I thought that he yeah. had a lot, I thought he had like a lot of screen presence. Actually, I, I was thinking this guy could could be in a little bit more of this movie, and I I wouldn't mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, that's cool. And you mentioned uh, that you're a musician as well. So was that all? Was that always just concurrent with the film thing? Is it? Are you kind yeah. of just a general artist in that way? Yeah, I like to I like to do a little of everything, and it's I I just when I think I'm specializing, I get interested in like another project. So I've, I think I've played music since I was like, well, I played music since I was four. My parents made me take violin lessons. Uh, and then I played guitar and my own like music since I was in middle school. So that's always been a big part of it, but I paint, um, and I write, um, but I guess it's mostly music and film is my real love because it really, combines all the arts. Mm-hmm. So was broken on all sides. The first, is that your first movie or do you have just a lot of unreleased stuff or what was, how does that enter into, I guess your film career? Um, yeah, I have a lot of short projects that I've done more for myself that aren't, I don't think they're anywhere available. Um, I did a lot of, uh, stuff in college, um, which I probably should put on the web. Some I should probably like upload it to YouTube or something. Just for, uh, just for posterity. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, I did a really bad feature. You said this is probably your first narrative feature. It wasn't. I did a really horrible one that I hope never is found um, in like 2004 or 2005. Um, so I was like 25, 26. And uh, it, it didn't really go anywhere. I, I like paid like money to one of these horrible film festivals in New York that's like, yeah, you can screen in New York. You just got to pay like a thousand dollars. And I sort of fell into that, but it was fun. It played in a big theater. I had a bunch of friends come. Um, so that was my sort of first long, you know, narrative uh, project. And then mostly I uh, sort of put it down after that and um, was trying to figure out what the hell to do with my life in, in my 20s. Was that was that movie kind of like a no-budget effort? Was that like a – Yeah. A, or did you ramp up to it or was it kind of – was it weekend shoots? Like uh, how, how much yeah. – I guess I'm asking how much like uh, – how much ass did you put into the movie? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, well, I, I, I wrote a script probably over a couple months and had some friends. I was living in Cincinnati at the time. Had some friends look at it and they were like, oh, this is good. We should shoot this. And we have a, I had a GL1 Canon, you know, camera that was pretty good back then. And my friend had a computer with editing equipment. And so, and then we just pulled it together. And again, it was the same type of thing. I think this is like with your early films. Like I started out in it out of necessity. Yeah. And my girlfriend was in it and our friends were in it. Um, so we, we had like one to two crew people. And a little bit of planning, but not, you know, not much. Gotcha. And you shoot your own stuff. Yeah. That one, I had my friend shoot it, which was nice. You, do you prefer that? Like it, it, given your, given the choice, would you have somebody else always shoot or do you have you, cause I, I did notice that both films, especially a dark souvenir are, are ve- very visual. And, yeah. um, <clears throat> I, I noticed that at least on a dark souvenir, I know you shot that one. Mm-hmm. Um, is that I how shot, I shot most of the broken on all sides too? Yeah, uh, no, they were more out of necessity. I mean, I definitely like um, playing with imagery, and so I would always want that to be you know in my films. But I, I have really just been the one man band out of necessity, and would love to someday have the opportunity and the budget and the crew and the planning to have someone be DP, not me, me just be director, not be in it, not be thinking of acting too. Um, the one thing I wouldn't give up is editing. And I know you're like that too. Yeah. I, 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 editing is my favorite part of the process. I love it. D- despite your, uh, your tech phobias. Yeah. Yeah. I had to, I, I learned final cut pro on broken on all sides. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, now I know it. So, and I have it. So, you are, know, as long as it works. Are you a final? You're a Final Cut Seven guy. Yeah. Yeah. No, nobody's making that switch. No. <laughs> <laughs> Every now and then, I'll I'll run into some outlier who's like, so I, I'm I think I like Final Cut X, and uh-huh. uh, and and it intrigues us all for about five seconds, and then we go back yeah. to our habits. Right. 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 <laughs> um. So I cut you off. Uh, you were saying that. You, you screened that movie and then you were kind of like, you spent about a year being like, where, where, where am I going next? Right. Um, you know, I was doing the whole, like, like your character and having fun up there. Like I was basically him. Like I was, um, you know, working at coffee shops and not very serious and, you know, just hoping that some project would make it so that my art career would maybe take off or I just have the opportunity to, to pay some bills and I have to worry about it and make art. And that of course never happened. Cause you know, nine times out of 10, it doesn't, it never does. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so I, I sort of just, I, there was no real opportunity for make, uh, to, for me to make other movies until, uh, a few years later, it was mostly like after I became an activist and after I, I, started going to law school, I started working with like nonprofit organizations for internships and they have no budgets and they're always looking for like promos or stuff to play at their fundraising dinners or this and that. So I did a lot of short pieces for like local ACLU chapters, 
you know, prisoners' rights organizations. And that really got me back in sort of like the, the short filmmaking mode process where I shot everything, I sort of wrote all the scripts, I edited it, I got it to the final, you know, product and, and put it out. So although I don't really like doing narrative um, short stuff, I've done a lot of shorts that are kind of more promo mm-hmm. Like storytelling for someone else, and you were mostly just motivated by your uh, by your activism, and because obviously it wasn't paying. Right. Yeah. Sometimes I would get paid, a, you know, a couple hundred bucks here or there, but mostly it was for like the cause of things that, and and the, you know, I like shooting stuff. I like you know the practice of being able to shoot and edit. So it was the combination of the cause and being able to practice film stuff. Why don't you like uh, working in uh, narrative short form? Because I, I agree completely. I'm just curious to why yeah, you feel the same it's way. Rare. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's rare. Um, I don't know. I'm kind of like if if I'm going to put in that much work and that much energy, like why, why can't it just be like a really long, like real movie? Like I, I, it's like discriminatory against shorts, but like I just have never been that interested in the short format. And um, I, I, I like to see an arc. And of a story and of characters, and I feel like that's really hard to do in the short format. Yeah, I, I agree. I, you know, for one thing, as, as you said, you know, just professionally, they, they can only have so much of a life, uh, w- right. w- and that's kind of a problem. Uh, for me, they and I've seen some incredible shorts that, that I would never be able to make, but um, but in general, I find even even some of the good ones, they kind of feel like setup and punchline. Uh, yeah. Even the dramatic shorts, they feel like uh, here's a plot set up and here's a punchline, and um, yeah, like oh yeah yeah and 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 the ca- the main character really um, they don't necessarily exist because we're interested in, in them or we're interested in their choices. They exist to shuttle around this little short plot, right? Um, and and uh, for that reason, I I don't know. I'd rather. Uh, yeah, you can't make you can't make a movie like having fun up there, um, where it really is about just spending time with the person, um, right. in a short film. You know, he, you, he, maybe you could do it in a half hour, but um, but it, it would it would be cutting it short. So, <laughs> yeah. and it would be so much work to to to, to do, right? right? So right. Uh, yeah, I don't know. In a I, in a way, it's like once you have all the cameras out and once you have all the people there, you might as well go go for broke. Yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. So, um, so you're, you're, you're producing now more content, you're more active, you, uh, you, you're back into the swing of things. How does that ramp up? Um, that was sort of by chance. Um, yeah, that was by chance. I was in, so broken on all sides was the thing that really got me like making like, you know, that was like a feature length documentary and 68 minutes. And, um, I uh, was in law school and I had ended up sort of focusing on the rights of people in prison or coming out of prison just because of the amazing people I happened to run into and was working with. And I was in law school in Philly and there was a tremendous problem inside the Philadelphia jail system, which is like one of the worst in the country. And I was working for the law firm that was had been suing the, the city and the jail system for decades over the conditions inside. And I, I kept seeing this disconnect between like the legal strategy and like people, like the public actually getting what's going on. And like, I, you know, as, as an activist, like I firmly believe that the legal system can be pushed along if people are outside, like on the streets or like organizing, you know, to, to, to let, you know, the judges know that they're watching, you know? And that, so that's sort of how the idea came up was that maybe I could do a short video about what's going on as this law- lawsuit was, was proceeding. Um, and then at the same time, I found out that the, the law school across town, the really expensive one, University of Pennsylvania had a, specific program within the law school that was called Program on Documentaries and the Law. And I got permission, long story short, to audit a class there that was basically about using film as an advocacy tool. And I was the only person that had a filmmaking background and we were supposed to make like a 10 to 12 to 15 minute 
short video to do with ad video advocacy. And so I was able to pitch like this idea about the prison system in that class, get a couple of other law students to help. And they had like awesome editing suites that only the law school had access to really good like digital camera, HD cameras that only the law students had access to. And of course, no one in law school is like making movies. Yeah. Why so did they even give those to them? That's weird. It, it was just for this little program that this, this professor, um, Regina Austin had started. And so I, I sort of like jumped on that and was like, so that's how the broken on all sides started was through this, like auditing this course, getting free film equipment through, you know, this university and some free help. And it started small. It got huge. I kept working on it then over like a couple of years and it became my own thing. And then it became, you know, what it, what it is. So that's fascinating. So there, there might be, <clears throat> if people are looking for, everybody's always looking for a budget. They're looking for equipment. They're looking for a means to make their movie. Um, and a lot of times they think, well, I got to go to a film school. The film school has all the cameras. The film school has all the microphones and all the actors. But who knows, man? Sometimes yeah. like academic programs get funded in such a way that they they have the you know, they have money, but they don't have the people. Right. And actually they're looking for you. Um and Very that, true. Th that's where you ended up. And if anyone is listening from the Philly area, like this program is always looking for um people with a film background to help. And oftentimes they'll pay. Like we had a camera person for a couple of shoots. Um that was paid through this program to, to come and film interviews. And, uh, the, you know, a program like that may even be open to a documentary type filmmaker coming in and pitching an idea and getting help. So for sure, it's like you never know where you're going to find it. It's not like they said, Matt, go make Broken on All Sides. You said, hey, uh, with this equipment, we could make Broken on All Sides. And then they said, yeah, that sounds great. Exactly. Yeah. So <clears throat> there, I, I wonder how many opportunities across the country there are like that. Uh, hopefully a lot. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think it's a, I think it's a fairly unique program for law schools. Yeah. Um, but you know, but it, that, that, that underlying concept, I mean, of, of yeah. um, so, people want to make video packages. They know that the best way to get their word out there is through YouTube and through, you know, digital content creation. And they, they are funded, but they do not have the humans. And yeah, uh, so right, right. I, I guess the, you know, I guess the advice would be uh, don't look under the most obvious rocks for money. Um, look under, yeah. look under less obvious rocks, especially if you, you have an idea of, you know, if, especially if you're a documentary filmmaker and there's a special interest topic and, yeah. you know, go, go look at those associations that you can, you can pair with. Right. Yeah, totally. Or like, you know sociology departments, um, polit political science departments, they, they may have some random, you know, amazing equipment they bought for one student that graduated and nobody's using it. Yeah, you know? exactly. Exactly. Um, so what does shooting that movie look like? How long does it take? Um, was it your, it, it, um, it was your first, uh, feature length documentary, so yeah. I'm shooting my first feature length documentary right now as well. And oh. I've, I'm learning a lot about that process because it's so different from narrative. Yeah. Um, it's what I'm finding is it's really just collection. It's uh, it's collecting as much content as possible and then shaping the story after the fact, which is like so backwards from narrative. So what right. did, what did you find? What kind of lessons did you learn on that movie? Um, well, uh, yeah, it's always changing. So I, it's, at first, there was a pitch for an idea that was 15 minutes talking to a few local politicians in the prisons and, and people who were in prison. And then it changes. And then you get interested in it. And then you find like other branches of the story. Yeah. And, um, you know, you also get into that whole thing like, what is truth? And like, you know, editing and like what what is the portion of the story you're you're choosing to allow the audience to see, and 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 my film is really an advocacy film. It really takes a strong position, so it's not trying to be neutral or anything. And I had to at some point decide that. And when I decided that is when a lot of other people said, "Great, good luck," but sort of dropped off the project. That's oh, wow. when the university said, um, you have our blessings, but take our name off of it. 
and uh, so you know it's interesting the sort of choices you you have to make, and then at some point it's like you can collect for forever. I agree, it is like collecting, yeah. and you can collect forever. And as soon as you stop collecting, there's going to be something great you missed. Yeah, you just have to stop at some point. And um, I know you work with your wife a lot. My wife was great at being like, just stop, just finish it. <laughs> And it, you need, you know, someone to be telling you that um, because I just had to just stop, you know. What role did she play on the movie? Um, so, well, mostly just kind of as like my consultant. The, like, yeah, the other person there, the yeah. other person doing the work. Yeah. yeah, I mean, she didn't, you know, I would just mostly bounce ideas off of her. She would come in, see me editing, see me like banging my head against the wall. Um and she would just give me ideas or help me try and think through things or tell me like, Jesus, you're still working on that. Like, just do it you know. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much a formal role. Although in the end I gave her a, a consulting producer credit, I think is what I said. I like made, I didn't even know if that's a real title, but I just <laughs> like, that sounds good. Yeah. I mean, when you're just running around shooting stuff, the, the, the idea of like assigning roles kind of gets thrown out the window. Yeah. Yeah. That uh, when I went to film school, I I saw a lot of I think before people actually have anything to make, they're trying to carve out their identity as well. What kind of filmmaker am I? What do, what do I look like to other people when I'm making my movies? And so they were very role conscious, um, way more than they needed to be for <clears throat> projects that were really small in scope or should have been really small in scope. Oh yeah, I I, I went I went to to Emerson and um. They have a, a really s- strong focus on uh, extracurriculars, and so they they have these uh, you know kind of like film clubs and stuff that they fund, and then everybody has to have a role on the movie. So if like sixty people join, well, then the short film that gets funded, it's all sixty people have to have some kind of role on it. Oh, uh, <laughs> and these are they're all first time filmmakers; they're all looking at a camera for the very first time. And, uh, you know, there, there are advisors, but not a tremendous amount. So it, it, it quickly becomes a big clumpy mess. Um, yeah, you know, we always, um, on my movies, you know, yeah, I'm the director and yeah, there's a DP and, but I don't know, it's that whole thing of like, uh, you do this and you do that. And we're going to define this really closely is, uh, is kind of, doesn't really serve filmmaking. I I find, or at least low budget filmmaking. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Once, once it got gets to a bigger stage, and there's more planning, and there's, you know, explosions yeah. or 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 special makeup. You know, you got to have people making sure they're handling their their own piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Uh, so, do you, did you edit while while you went along? Uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm like, I kind of come home with the footage and make a little video blog out of it, just so that it sticks in my mind better. Some people, you know, Jeff was shooting a documentary. He says, well, I didn't do it that way. I instead transcribed all of the text for all the interviews. And then I was able to, you know, to search for stuff when I was looking for one clip or that clip or whatever. So how, how did you skin that cat? <clears throat> um, I think we uh, didn't do either of those things, although I recommend doing either of those things. <laughs> we, we, we stumbled our way. I really stumbled my way through that movie, and we were all students. So um, we collected all the footage. We were, I think we – it was on tapes. Um, it was on mini-DV tapes. Mm. I don't even think we dumped the tapes um, oh until my God. sort of towards editing. And we dumped the tapes that we had. We're like, do we have them all? I think we're missing one. Um, And then, you know, we each went through and like marked, uh, based on this kind of story we had, marked portions where we thought, this is good. This is what they're saying. We should come back to this. Um, But it would have been nice to either have transcriptions or sort of go along as we did it. And... And then, you know, again, the way the way it turned out, I kind of made one finished version after like uh, six months or eight months and then wasn't quite happy with it and kept moving on. And so I shot a whole bunch more footage mm-hmm. by myself. And um, and so at that point, I had an edited thing that then I kept jamming all these other pieces into and trying to like, you know, revise and make it work, which was actually really hard because I was kind of like rewriting the story as I was, as I was going. Cause once you've established the narrative flow of the thing and then you insert this new idea, I, I, I imagine that yeah. the, the other, the, you know, the other sides of that new idea have to kind of mesh 
mesh well with what you added. Yeah, and it was just tons and tons of editing, and it was a pain. I did a lot of um, test screenings, which I found very valuable. Like I, I sort of, I've toured the movie all over the place, but I started touring it before it was even done, and with a lot of um, sociology departments um, and. I would hand out forms for feedback, like I created a feedback form, and that was really, really useful, and I used it. It was very painful, too, Mm -hmm. but it was very useful to get the final cut based on probably like 20 different audiences full of feedback. That's a really good idea. So that was anonymous feedback forms? Yeah. So there was no uh, social pressure to say, yeah, it was great? No, and I I was just a visiting professor or visiting speakers. So they, you know, they had no reason to think I was, you know, that it was totally honest. Which was good. So were, were they just open cards that like, tell me what you thought, or did you have some questions? I had a very specific thing. I could, I could send it to you if you, if you're interested, but it was yeah. like, you know, was, was it too long? What, what did you think of the length of the movie? One to five, too long, too short. What did you think of how the music was used? Um, you know, but then there was also some places for people to write their own stuff. Like what, what did we not cover that you would have liked to have seen? Right. So it was, it was like a one page form with a lot of information. Yeah. If you, if you send it, I'll, uh, I'll, if you don't mind, I'll upload it to yeah. the pot, to the podcast and other oh, people, yeah. other people can download it. I'll uh, try and find it. That sounds, that sounds really smart. I've done my share of, uh, especially the film before having fun up there, sexually Frank, I did a lot of, uh, I was in school at the time, so I was I, I had a lot of opportunities to screen, and um, it, it was invaluable. It, it, you, after a while, when you hear the same people saying the same things over and over again, just in different ways, you start yeah. to you start to understand. The more you screen, the more you understand the commonalities of what the problem actually is. Because a lot of times, you ask somebody, "What did you think of X?" and they start to try to problem solve for you, and so. It, the point is they had a problem and that's really the only useful information from there. Their, their suggestions for solving it often start to kind of go yeah. off, off the path. But then when you go talk to another person has a completely different idea on how to fix it, but still had a problem with the same exact thing, then you can start to solve that problem um, yeah. with all of their feedback. But if you're not writing any of it down, uh, we, we used to tape it. That's what, you know, we would, vi- we would record the audience, but then you're putting a lot of social pressure on them to, to not be an asshole to you. Um, right. and you might, you might really want to invite them to be an asshole to you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, that's true. I think the, the anonymous thing is good and to have it in a written form. Um, I mean, cause I could almost just quickly page through and see five, 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 one. Oh, what's yeah. this? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or if it's you're flipping through and it's one, 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 one on one particular issue, you're like, man, it's clear that we have an issue there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's really great. So, um, you end up finishing it. Had you ever considered uh, doing a follow up? Yeah, I have, and and everyone that ever talks to me <laughs> asks me if there's a follow. I would love to. It was just, you know, it's just like. If I have the time and the money, yeah, yeah. I would love to. Um, it was, it, it 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 has such a life um, right now because this issue is so big and it's not going away and it ties into Ferguson and and all these protests going on now. Um, so I, I'm lucky that it's not perfect. It's not full enough. I'd like to do follow up, but what it's really designed to do is is spark conversations. And so there it still has a life. And I try to uh, I tried to keep it to an hour so that there would be time to have a good, healthy yeah. discussion afterwards. And That's so really <laughs> wherever I tour the movie or it's being played, I try and get, you know, a panel of people together, people who are incarcerated, people who are other advocates on this issue. And that way they can jump off from the end of the movie into whatever it is locally, their issues or whatever they think I missed. Um, so I, I would love to do a follow up. But uh, well, actually, I work with an organization in Philly called the Center for Returning Citizens. And returning citizen is one of the words for people who are coming out of prison. And he, the the. Um, the head of the, the organization is really pushing me to do a documentary on them. And I've, I've started to piece together footage and I bought them a little 
you know, cheapo video camera that's HD that they can take and film. So they're sending me HD cards. And so I have all this footage that eventually maybe I will make sort of a follow-up that's more specific about one organization and how they're dealing with these issues. If you're anything like me, you're probably sitting there being like, hmm, I'd love to start editing some of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I did. I, start, I edited together 10 minutes, but but I, I just don't have time. You got right? other things to do. Yeah. Um, what was the year of the release of that movie, of Broken All Side? 2012. Okay, so, so that's really interesting. So, you know, for for – for all of your desire to want to, uh, to follow up on the story and get and and you know zero in on the story, it, it wasn't until two years later that it you know the the topic ended up being more relevant than ever because of uh, you know some of the recent events. So I think it goes to show you you didn't really you might have made a movie about Philly and about you know but you were really making a movie about the whole country as it turned out because two years later they want to watch it more than ever. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, you know, I have a great, I think it's a great website. Um, it was, my friend designed it for the movie broken on all sides.com. Um, it's, it, we haven't updated it in forever. Um, but like it has a very basic, nice design with information. Here's how you get the movie. Here's how you contact me. And it's amazing how many people just stumble across that website after a Google search for a movie about incarceration or racism in the criminal justice system. And that's still how I'm getting like someone in North Carolina, someone in Wisconsin. They're like, can we show this movie for our Martin Luther King Day event coming up? Can we show it for our, you know, incoming freshmen? So, you know, it's just been amazing to, to fit a niche where and now that niche is getting wider. You know, so that that the activist community really takes a hold of it, embraces it, helps you spread the word. That's that's the only way the movie has been as successful as it's been. And that's got to make you feel incredible. I mean, especially as an activist, as somebody who is passionate about the, to- the topic. Um, yeah, no. yeah, that's why that's why I made the movie. It's just you never know if that's act- if it's actually going to work. You know. So so let's talk about how you got it out there. Um, yeah, it sounds like obviously like you know just doing a basic Google search has gotten some traffic over to the movie. But how else have you uh, made people aware of it? Yeah, well, at first I tried the film festival thing, and that just really sucked um, <laughs> because I, I once first- I once wrote a chapter on this. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> First of all, nobody wanted it. Uh, you know, second of all, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I stumbled my way through the whole process, even though I had experience. Like, I know how to frame. I know how to edit. But right. everything else besides that, I stumbled my way through it. And it was such a pain to try and figure out what festivals. And then the ones I got into, I had no control over, like, Luckily, they most of them worked with me where the ones I could go to, I said, hey, I want to do a panel afterwards. I want to bring in these people. We'll bring in local people, you know, to talk about the issue. And some of them worked with me. Um, but I realized quickly that it would be better if I just set up my own screenings like at libraries, at yeah. community centers. And so um, – I mean, I contacted a lot of organizations across the country. If you, if you have an issue-based documentary, um, that's you know you obviously look for people that are interested in that issue, and that's your audience. Um, and you, and did, I, you did that just by googling, or what? Yeah, and I was I was an activist in that scene, so, so you were aware. It's e- easier, and by word of mouth, and like um, you know, I would maybe hear. Um, Someone in Wisconsin would contact me and say, hey, will you come to the University of, of Wisconsin-Madison and do a screening? And then through my networks of people, I would ask, okay, who are the organizations I should get in touch with to come? And then – and be a part of the panel and set up tables and information. And then almost everywhere I went, I would go and then the people that came would want, want to set up more screenings in, in their area. They may be an hour outside of Madison or here or there. So um, so it really wasn't – it sounds to me like like it was it was a grassroots effort that was more uh, – that, that, that relied on the internet a lot less than you normally would. That may be. That may be. Yeah, I mean a lot of – yeah, I think that's true. Because it, it was the attendance of the events that yeah. – perpetuated it yeah and and then you know other people may may have contacted me afterwards saying oh i missed you 
in Rhode Island, but can you send me a copy of the movie? My church wants to screen it. I'm going to screen. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, and then it was like Facebook, like, you know, Facebook page pages of organizations, um, and, and, uh, and contacting people, um, you know, through, through Facebook and trying to get, you know, but I don't know, a lot of it was sort of through already existing events set up that would then lead to other things, which is awesome. Yeah. It has a bit of a life of its own. Right, right, right. It was kind of self-perpetuating in that way. Yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, that movie ended up, uh, having a life on Seed and Spark. So tell us about what that, the, the reason I'm aware of Seed and Spark is because I went to the Austin Film Festival and they did a presentation there and, uh, I had never heard of them before. And I was really, I really enjoyed what the, uh, I can't remember her name, but what the speaker, Emily, Emily Best, maybe that sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, short hair. Uh, yeah, it's probably, she's the head of it. I think that's who it was. She was, she, she had a lot of really valuable things to say. Um, especially in the way of, you know, a crowdfunding campaign should not, ne- and, and in this case you didn't crowd crowdfund, you just use seed and spark for distribution. Um, but she was talking about how a crowdfunding campaign should be just as much about engaging fans and collecting fans as it is collecting the cash itself. Um, which I think is a really important piece that a lot of people miss. Um, uh, I, I'm always re- really disappointed when people go quiet after they've met their goal um, or whatever. So, uh, but, but, you know, I, I, I like this this concept of um, of trying to establish a website where you can go for independent films, um, where pe- uh, people can can sell it to you, but for a low cost. It can be connected right into a crowdfunding campaign. So there's kind of a you can live a film can live a life on this website. So what right. uh, what led you to it, and and what for for a film that probably had options, why did you choose Seed and Spark? Um, well, I thought it was an amazing concept, the concept you described. And yeah, the, the movie was done. I think that Seed and Spark is relatively new. It, it may only be a year or two old. Um, and I can't remember how I found out about it, but uh, w- when I did, I, I thought... I would love to, I mean, I, I was actually having trouble with getting the move with broken on all sides and getting it into any kind of like mainstream or even indie distribution. You were having so, no problems with screening, but you were having a tough yeah. time with like actually like catapulting it. Yeah. yeah. And, and part of it was like people, um, more mainstream people didn't like that. It was an advocacy. Like I even like, I think PBS wouldn't accept it for their, for one of their, you know, documentary series because it took a point of view. Um, to me, to me, that that's inherent in documentary filmmaking. Documentary filmmaking is not about um, it, it's not a news report. It's 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 an artist expressing themselves. I mean, uh, forks over knives and Food Nation and uh, Supersize Me. I mean, like every every major documentary you see on the top hits of Netflix, all are opinion based. Right. And it's just a lie. The other ones that say they're not, yeah, yeah, you know? like because you, it's almost like you don't know what their agenda is. It's almost it's almost more not more dangerous, but like it, it, at least if you're out there about it, you know where the filmmaker is coming from, and so you know what footage they probably didn't decide to put in. Yeah, but yeah. if they're just like, oh, here's a documentary on the South, you know in 1990 or something you're like well, where who who is making this what didn't they do you know it, yeah because at, at that point they're trying to they're they're not coming forth and saying i'm going to try to persuade you to see my point of view instead they are, are silently uh, yeah. ma- manipulating your perspective and right. yeah that does seem kind of um to, to me there's a media ethics issue there yeah so, so I, I had, I had problems. I mostly self-distributed and, and I guess when I heard about Seed and Spark and heard that you could, um, have it streamed through there, I was like, this is great. I, you know, I could probably hold out and hope for a better like Netflix or something, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was like, I want to support this, this idea and this community. So I'm glad, I'm glad I did. And it's gotten a ton of views through it. Um, 
And I, I've uh, the main way I keep in touch with the Seed and Spark community is through these great Twitter chats they have every other Tuesday. And they just use um, the hashtag film curious. Mm-hmm. And I, it's a lot of mostly filmmakers, mostly very indie filmmakers. And they'll have a different topic for every Twitter chat. And I find it very useful. And because I'm not like plugged into a film community, I didn't go to film school. I'm not like a full-time filmmaker, so I'm, I don't know what's going on in Philly, even though I probably should. Um, it, it's the community that I feel like I, 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 I want to belong to that I haven't had a chance to access. So I think it's a great concept. And I love the idea of that the crowdfunding is like getting your fans on board and not just about raising money. So I, I think that's a cool concept um, too. And they're more than just a platform. Like they also do those tours and things and they like curate collections. And I think they do some like film screenings where they'll take some of their films. So I just think it's a cool idea. And we're at a time where we're all trying to figure out what the best way to get indie film is out, you know, out there. And I, so I, I think that they also are um, in it for the right reasons. Like they're filmmakers and they're not like assholes from LA, you know? Yeah. It, it's, they seem to be making opportunities where, where opportunities didn't quite exist a minute ago. Yeah. Um, yeah, if if to sell your movie for the same amount of dollars that you can on Seed and Spark, uh, you'd have to get on iTunes or, or you know, is, is some you get through some kind of gatekeeper. And these guys aren't gatekeepers; they're enablers. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So have you have have the sales for the movie been okay? Has that been kind of like a nice little like extra to your life or? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I I think I also have it on Vimeo on demand. And that that's it uh, through my website. You can either watch it through Cedar and Spark or Vimeo on demand. And th- it's been nice. It's like something you don't have to think about. And then every month there's a couple, I don't know, a couple hundred bucks. So that's, that's great. You'll take it. Yeah. And then, and then I still sell DVDs, just, you know, packaging them up and sending them as you, as you do um, through the website. And I'm, well, there's one, I have one educational distributor out of, Portland called Collective Eye, um, but they're so small. They don't have much marketing budget. I don't, there's not many sales that I see through them, but that's, that's help. That's something. And then mostly it's just people. Um, well, it's a lot of like in-person sales at screenings. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I sell a lot of DVDs. I give a lot of DVDs away too. Yeah. Don't we all? Yeah. Um, sometimes you just want people to watch your movie. You're like, let's not make this t- hard. Just watch it. Just go ahead. I, I've toyed with the idea of just putting it for free and yeah. like donations. Um, and I probably will eventually. So. But right now there's a, there's a demand and that demand, uh, it, you know, people will eat, will happily pay two, $3 to watch a movie about something that's important to them. So, you know, uh, yeah. for somebody who's trying, somebody who's trying to make a career out of this, I don't, you know, I don't see anything wrong with that. Yeah. And in some ways, uh, people sometimes need to pay just a little something to be invested enough to watch it. You're so, you're so right. (laughs) You know, there's, there's something about, um, you know, a a free YouTube upload. That's kind of like it it, it somehow psychologically makes you value it less. Um, and I'll tell you the more they pay for it, the more they're going to make sure to watch it. Uh, when when I've, when I've sold $20 Blu-rays, people like, like that week are like, I watched it three times, you know, (laughs) suddenly, suddenly they're trying to like get their money's worth out of it. Uh, whereas if I took the exact same movie and put it up for free on YouTube, they'd be like, cool, I'll watch it sometime. Bye. Um, so yeah, no, you're right. Uh, uh, there, there is a, I have found that, that, um, that sometimes charging for something that it doesn't really act necessarily as, as much of a blockade as you'd think. Sometimes it makes people want to watch the movie. Yeah. Same with, same with events. Um, like a lot of times it's good to get someone to commit to come to an event if they pay $5 for a ticket. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, now you have directed, uh, another narrative feature, uh, one that you are standing behind and want to push out there. Mm -hmm. So talk about a dark souvenir a little bit. Um, so this was a really small project that, um, Basically, 
me and my wife did in our spare time. And I had, uh, it, it, the idea sort of came to me when we were on our honeymoon and we, we, um, we went to uh, Scandinavia. We, that's we visited our Swedish friends. That's where it started. We went to Denmark and we went to um, Saint Petersburg briefly. And um, I'm always writing movies in my head. That's how I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm and I'm also always taking photos with my phone and videos. And so I was doing that. And we were in some creepy old fort in in Copenhagen. And I'm writing. You know, starting to write in my head. And then we're on the plane home, back home, and I'm writing, and it just never stopped. And I developed a whole story, you know, based on that. This 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 couple that goes on a honeymoon, you know, visits some weird place, brings something back with them, some kind of haunting or whatever supernatural, and have to deal with it. And you know, I tried to also put in lots of layers because for me it's not just interesting if it's just one story but like for me it's also about like my wife's Jewish we're we're Jew I'm basically Jewish and there's a lot of Jewish themes in the movie as kind of subtext that I'm working through and there's also just personal stuff and so to me art has always been a way to kind of work through ideas through through um through concepts, through philosophies, through through troubles, um, so uh, so it you know I wanted to make and I love scary movies, so I wanted to always wanted to make a scary movie. So I'm like, this looks like it could be it. I'll try and write it in a way that'll just take place in our house. We don't need many other actors. Um, you know, I can throw the camera up on a tripod. We can do it ourselves and. I, I did have a script, but it kept changing based on like the circumstances in our life where I would like collect um, some footage and not quite know how I was going to use it. And it would become a piece of the film and then I would change the script slightly. So it was really kind of a, a weird um, work in progress for the last two years that was built around a really basic concept of this haunting and this story. And I, I don't know, finally got enough footage to get a finished, you know, 80-minute edit and happy to get it out there into the world. So you've shared a rough cut with me, but you told me that it was it was real close. Um, yeah. So when do you expect to try to release this guy? So I'm going to try and do festivals. I've, I've started submitting it to, to like, mid-level festivals um, horror genre festivals, and I'm going to try and, um, regardless of what happens, uh, I think the first screenings for festivals could be like April and, um, regardless of what happens, I'll probably rent a theater or, you know, see if I can get a theater in Philly or the suburbs to do the premiere. And, um, I'm trying to figure out how to then keep it going. So what digital platform to do that? Um, And I I told you as we were emailing, I've been like eating up podcasts on distribution. And um, it's still, it's like the the more I learn, the more confused I am about (laughs) like the way to go. So teach us a little bit if you have learned anything. Um, uh, Anything that took you by surprise? You're like, I never quite thought of it that way. Well, um, one thing I've learned that kind of sucks is like still even most indie distributors are like horror goes really well. Horror distributes really well these days and it can be pretty low budget, but you still need some kind of recognizable cast. Yeah. And, and that's just really shitty for people like you and me that like don't know like It'll never happen. Uh, yeah. somebody or don't want to spend ten thousand dollars for an appearance. Well, I, th- I thought you were going to say uh, if you don't have a recognizable cast, then you need uh, uh, lots of gore or lots of nudity or both. Right. Well, yeah. so that that's true. That's true. And I don't have either of those. Yeah, I don't have any of those. Things. It's more of a it, it's more of kind of it's more Rosemary Rosemary's Baby less Saw. Three. Yes. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that that the slow build, yeah. like eerie, and then some kind of finale. That's always been my favorite kind of horror movie. Um, 
And uh, so, so yeah, so you don't have nudity, you don't have blood and guts throughout it, you don't have a cast, it's really hard. So it makes me think more and more, okay, I just have to do this myself. But then the more I find out, it's like still really hard for filmmakers to make money even off of indie distribution yeah. or to get it out there. So even if you get a distributor, you still have to work the same about getting your audience to your movie. So why not just self-distribute anyway? It's so, a, a lot of people are asking themselves that question. So, I mean, w- w- to me, what just distribution is for is help finding an audience. But if they're not doing that, then I think, you know, more and more I'm just leaning towards like um, Seed and Spark, Vimeo On Demand, having a website out there, showing up to like these horror conventions and horror conferences um, and, uh, and I don't know, I mean, the, I, I think the festivals would be really fun. I mean, what I learned from Broken All Sides is like, they, they don't take things, like it's so competitive and yeah. you never know what they're going to take. And festivals I thought I would get into, I didn't. And festivals I didn't think would, did. So like, I, you know, I, there's not a sure thing with the festival run either, but I like, I really want to be able to have it in a theater, see audiences, watch it and have that experience. Which you, you already know from broken on all sides, you can generate yourself. Yeah. Um, and I'm with you. So, so often it's just like, I just want people to watch it. You know, I want it. Yeah. I want to get as many people as possible to watch it. And then I want to move on to my next movie. Um, yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I, I have learned over, over the years that, um, and this isn't me saying that my movies are either good or bad. All I'm saying is I've learned that, Quality is not the thing that determines distribution. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's not like you know, good movies get distributed and bad movies don't. No, we all know that if if we um, you know, if we made a movie called Babysitter Kill Kill, and there was a, a you know a DVD cover that was sexy enough, um, it may even make its way into Fye. Uh, right. But you know, it it the the, the fact is uh, and then you know somebody's gonna go home disappointed with with some schlocky ass movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it happened, it, it, you know, it, especially during like the early two thousands when DVD really boomed and people were like, they were just trying to sell $10 DVDs to anybody that would buy them. Um, now it's, a, I think people are, are more discerning because there's so much more to choose from. Uh, I, I think people are basing what they watch, it, it, you know, for streaming platforms, any of the streaming pl- platforms, they're basing what they watch on, uh, uh, user reviews, critic reviews, yeah. uh, things that you don't necessarily see. It's things that are uh, conveniently omitted on the DVD cover. Uh, yeah, totally. Yeah, like I, I, uh, I almost every night I try and find a new horror movie on Netflix to watch, like right before I go to sleep. And the, just the amount of crap out there. I mean, I'm glad that at least it's indie crap. Like it's not Hollywood crap. Yeah, um, but still. But, but I go on and and then I'm like, oh, this looks pretty good. And then I start looking at the reviews and I'm like, oh, shit, I'm not going to watch this. Yeah. You know? it, it, do you come across them because they, they uh, you know, there's like a compelling po- uh, poster or a compelling thumbnail or is are you just kind of looking through synopses in the horror section? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the cover art is, is still important, like Netflix or any of the video on demand things, I feel like you can instantly tell if it's going to be one of those cheesy nudity, bad story you've seen a thousand times, just based on the the cover art. So a lot of it will be that, which is, you know, that's often what will draw you, draw you in. I find the more amazingly awesome the cover art is, (laughs) the more, the more it's compensating for, uh, for what what lurks what lurks underneath i i i often uh you know if you if if your poster is a photo uh i i may be a little bit more open to watching it if if it's one of if it's like of the horror genre you know yeah 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 uh, but that might be just because i have like a you know a history with these movies right right um yeah i'm trying to so i'm trying to figure that all out right now i actually don't have the main cover art and i like i have an artist painter friend who has agreed to try and do a painting for the cover, which could be interesting. Yeah. So I'm, I'm trying to figure that all out. But I think, you know, the other thing is like, it, it's, um, it's, it's a really, really no budget movie. And I think it turned out great. 
and I'm happy to get it out there. But I also more want just people to see it and have fun. And if there is any way that somebody would see it and say, hey, let's give this guy $20,000 and two crew members rather than zero to make his next movie, that's sort of like the goals. Yeah. So will will you find yourself – do you think you'll find yourself um, trying to find investors for a second movie? Do you think – you know, because uh, I imagine that you're going to want to pursue them rather than um, expect anybody to pursue you. Yeah. Well, so that was the other interesting thing that I found out about distribution is the distributors that also create their own content. And I've thought about trying to like sell to a company where maybe I don't take any revenue from this film, but I include a cut where they'll give me some money to make a next one. Um, I don't know if that's possible, but that's one idea I've, I've, I've that's toyed a thought. Yeah, so. definitely. Um, and it, it would be good to have a home somewhere, you know, where you can go, go from movie to movie. And, uh, some, some people do that, you know, they don't, they don't make a tremendous amount of money on any one movie, but they, um, they always have a place that they can go for distribution because they have a relationship with a distributor. Right. Um, right. That's something I'd love to have. I don't think, I don't think. I don't know if this is the movie for that, like, if I'm being honest. Like, yeah. I don't think it's quite polished enough for that. Um, so You look at this as more of a calling card in a way? Yeah, yeah. And and I just wanted to, really wanted to make it, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I um, feel compelled to make stuff, <laughs> you know? <laughs> to, me, to me, that's like the most important thing ever is, you know, it, if, if, if you're getting off your ass and, and turning your PDFs into real movies, then, uh, uh, then you're doing it right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, totally. And I love that philosophy that you push on this podcast <laughs> that I'm evangelizing constantly. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, where can people, uh, uh, let, let's, let's list all the things that they can do to find you and watch the movies. Okay. So, um, broken on all sides.com is where you can find that film. Um, adarksouvenir.com is the website that I'm still sort of putting together for the horror movie. Um, and I have my own website, matthewpillisher.com, and nobody will spell my last name right. Maybe you can put it on. It'll be in the show, yeah. Okay. Um, which is sort of my personal website that has a little of everything I do, music, the law, painting the movies. Great. So, um, and, and they all have email addresses on there that people can easily find me and get in touch with me for sure. And in your search for podcasts that you find educational and whatnot, do you find any, any diamonds in the rough, any you would recommend? Um, what was the name? I think there's one called business of film that I thought was really good. Do you know that one? No, I never heard of it. Um, yeah. Business of film. I thought that was really good. Um, Craft Truck is the like producer, um, but it's just one guy. He's a pro- I think he's a producer um, for pretty big indie films, and it's it's a, a, some of it is not relevant to people like you and me, where it's a little bit more like to the you know one million to five million dollar range of yeah. indie, which um, pisses me off a little bit. Um, but it's, it's very useful in terms of, it's like your show. Well, he'll, he'll bring on, you know, someone different from different aspects of, of the film business and it's just focused on the business. And how, so how do you write a script to sell it? How do you talk to people about your script? And then it'll be, how do you make money being a camera person? And then, so for me, I tried to, you know, look at all the ones about distribution and I, I thought that was a really good one. Business of film. I'll have to check it out. Yeah. Uh, listen, thanks so much for, uh, for reaching out to me, for coming on the show, for talking to us about, about all this stuff. Uh, it's really helpful. And I'm, I'm just so grateful. There are other filmmakers out there that, that are like-minded and, and want to trade ideas. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to email me. Absolutely. And again, I, I, uh, I, I think uh, I told you before we started, I watched having fun up there again this morning and I feel like it really hit me. Um, the second time around, I watched it once and I was like, this is very good. But then I, I was like, I want to watch it again before I come on the podcast. <laughs> and uh, I, I realized how amazing the writing was 
um, to pass on to your writer. Yeah, give it up to Jeff, yeah. Yeah, and um, I just, I, I feel like the storytelling, the production, the sound, and then for me, just the themes that come up really, really hit me, and I identified with a lot of it. Even just, like, the the young girl who, like, um, comes in and, like, how people come into your life and leave your life yeah. and you never know exactly what they're going to do to you. But clearly she, she had an effect on him. I thought it was very touching. So. Oh, I'm, I'm glad that I'm glad that made sense. Although you did have the context of the book, but I'm glad that that made sense. Cause that was something that we wanted to, uh, we wanted to figure out how to, how to communicate that idea of, um, you know, it, it was so important that it, that it not be something romantic. It was more about, um, uh, you were here for, you know, three months or whatever, and, uh, and, and even though I don't see you anymore, uh, you're not going to go away. You, 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 yeah. had, you had an impact. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like the older you get, the more you realize like your relationships with friends or family are never, are not going to be the same. They always change and you never know like sort of how it's going to impact you. Yeah. And so I thought that was, not, but it was also, it was everything. Like even the, the lady in the coffee shop who gives them the number for school, like that was like just a two second thing that changes, you know? Yeah. It sets them, sets them on a different track. Yeah. 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 So I thought that was very cool. And, um, I haven't seen your other films, but I'm a fan based on that and the podcast. That's cool. That's cool. Well, uh, all you have to do is say hi to me and you get like a whole like truck full of swag. So <laughs> <laughs> let that be a lesson to anybody else out there. Cool. Uh, um, all right, man, I will talk to you. I, please stay in touch. Come back on the show when a dark souvenir is out. Tell us about new lessons you've learned. And, and thanks again so much. OK, that would be great. Good talking to you.